Hi, Jen. How are you? Good. Good. Just, you know, enjoying this uh, beautiful day. Yeah. Also trying to think of the best, most positive way into the subject of today's conversation. Yeah, I mean, in in the least negative way, I don't know that there is like a, a super soft entry point, um, which is just part of the conversation. I mean, there's even the title, you know, it's like right there in the title. It's this talking about gun violence and there is no easy way into that conversation. This is one that we that we partnered with a couple of different organizations on this year. Um, we've had, I feel like in the past, we've had a couple of different conversations where it's come up as part of another topic. Um, mm-hmm. And we've also kind of talked about like violence in general yep. on TV being where we are. It feels like, you know, being very specific about gun violence and gun safety and how that is currently presented on TV feels like a very, unfortunately, very relevant uh, and necessary conversation to have. And I mean, we usually have a, a presence from every town mm-hmm. in some way yep. um, at the festival. And so this was just kind of expanding on that partnership and, you know, making them part of the, the conversation in a more like tangible way. Well, the thing that I love about this conversation and putting it together is that we do have representatives from every town. Mm-hmm. That who is who moderated it, Hollywood Health and Society and the Brady Foundation. And I think having each of those organizations represented as part of the conversation and that there's a clear agreement between those orgs of, yes, they want people to be responsible in telling stories about gun violence, but even more than that, and I think the thing that is less polarizing is really they're all in agreement about how to show gun safety on TV. And that if that is what can get into people's heads and really change culture about just, yes, people are going to own guns. And that is a bigger battle that this country is fighting and what that looks like at the end of the day. Who knows? But if people could really understand how easy it is to just be safe with your guns and how much that that can stop so many senseless acts of violence that are because of guns, I think is the true mission of what they see as accomplishable. Because when you look at like, let's fight the big bad, let's go after the NRA, that's almost too big. But like, but if we can teach people how easy it is to lock up a gun when they get home at the end of the day, then great. Like we're making such headway and we're going to solve so many problems. Yeah. I mean, one of the entry points into this conversation is that they they do approach it like a health and safety issue like yes. the you know the seat at one point i think um the seatbelt initiative comes up where like it was it just kind of started becoming a part of tv and film where people would put on their seatbelt like mm-hmm. in a tv show or a movie um and that just became a accepted part of what you do when you get in the car to like protect yes. yourself um and so trying to, like, take that same approach to something like, you know, locking up your gun and storing your gun um, is, I think, one way that TV is really, like, uniquely suited to do this on a weekly basis in a way that doesn't feel overtly political or... It's not preachy. Yeah. <laughs> it's not because the one thing that they talk about that we so much agree with when it comes to something like this. Uh, is if you preach at people, they're going to turn you off. Yeah. And w- even if you believe in it, even if I'm watching something and I'm like, I fully believe in what they are preaching right now, as soon as it feels preachy, it's like, I'm done. This is, you've lost the entertainment value. You've lost the authenticness of the story you're telling. Now there seems to be an agenda, whereas you have to be so careful walking that line. Yeah. And to make your point. Yeah. I think another thing that they talk about that I think is interesting in the same line of seatbelts. Actually, I don't know if they talk about it or if I was just thinking about it, but um, 
designated drivers, like the term designated drivers, there was basically years ago a campaign for that term and how that term became a commonly used a known phrase. And I think that that's also saved many people along the years because that's just like something that people do now. It's like, okay, we're going out. Who's the DD? And that that has become such a common phrase in our zeitgeist. And I think that that was also media spreading that term and spreading those words. And just like how, I don't want to say it's easy, but how important it is for TV shows and movies to get on the same page of if we can all use these same phrases or all use the same basic principles and we can use it in our shows over and over again, it will start to catch on. Like, I truly believe that. Yeah. Yeah. And the cool thing, I I mean, uh, aside from the organizations, there's also three writers on this panel um, and they all have very different sort of lenses that they look at this topic through um two of them have i think all three of them have written on shows where gun violence was part of the story um but uh two have recently written on projects that were that where that is very much a part of the characters and the like reality of those worlds and then one of them has decided to create sort of an aspirational like universe where gun violence is not a part of it. Um, and even hearing them to sort of talk amongst themselves about like being able to do that, mm-hmm. uh, you know, at this point in time is not something that everybody can do or has the leverage to do, but to sort of take a step back and like really thoughtfully, mindfully, like work through those things with your writer's room and with your, you know, producers in your studio and like, have those conversations at the very beginning so that everyone knows like what you're opting into and like how this, how this violence or how the depiction of guns is going to influence the story, like moving forward from the very beginning. Yes. Um, Which is something that I think these organizations want to also help writers with. They've, you know, every town has a resource guide, and uh, right before, a few weeks before the festival, before this conversation, Hollywood Health and Society actually put out a report um, with gun guidelines for media use to help the entertainment industry improve these representations of like safe and responsible gun use. And so both of those are a part of this conversation. Um, and every town also was part of the funding for that report as well. So like you said, it's everyone is on the same page about we need to be smarter about how these things are included and portrayed. Um, and there are there are resources available to help writers do that and to have those conversations very early on as you're sort of starting down a new road. Yep. Yeah. So I feel like this conversation in a way that I also love, it's a heavy topic, but they're very positive and end on a hopeful note as I feel like all of our panels do, even the heavier ones that say, we're going to end this at a hopeful note with, what is making you feel positive about the industry and where it's going. And I think the thing that makes me feel good about conversations like this is one, just how appreciative the people are that are on it about these conversations happening and that the more people can discuss and get together and share ideas, the more that they can actually move forward with these thoughts and with these partnerships and the script integration work that they're doing. And I think that that I love that we can play a part in that. And then I love just being able to bring these people together. I know a lot of them on the panel had never met before, and now they can be used as a resource for each other and spread those resources to the next rooms that they're in. Because as they start to plan whatever show is next or even new seasons of a show, them having those conversations early on about how are we going to portray this issue? What is it going to look like? Let's have that kind of North Star even as we start is a huge step forward. I think one of them mentions at the beginning that, like, when they originally started doing panels like this, there used to be more of them on the panel than people <laughs> in the room. Yes. Um, and luckily, there were a lot more people in the room than there were on the panel for this one. And so I think it's important to see that, like, this is something that audiences want and are interested in um, in the shows that they're watching. Like, they want to be having this conversation and to know that, like, the people writing these shows are aware of this and like being thoughtful about it. So I 
left this conversation feeling like there are a lot of ways in Mm -hmm. to this topic um, and there is not one right way to do it, but there is a lot of like awareness and intentionality in, in the writer's rooms for a lot of these shows, which makes me feel better as a viewer (laughs) and somebody about the world, somebody paying to watch these shows. So, yeah, agreed. So with that, here is gun violence and safety on TV moderated by Stofi Yan, who is the director of cultural and entertainment advocacy for every town for gun safety. Hi, everyone. Thank you for being here today. Um, I know it's very early to talk about a pretty heavy topic, but um, before we get started, I do want to just acknowledge that we are going to be talking about descriptions of gun violence today, acts of whether nonfiction, fiction, as well as research and statistics that may feel heavy and emotional at times. So please feel free to step out. Uh, promise there will be no offense taken whatsoever. Take good care of yourselves um, as we have this conversation. Um, so... I have no cards because I'm feeling really old school. Um, But my name is Sophie Yan, she, her pronouns, and I am the Director of Cultural and Entertainment Advocacy at Everytown for Gun Safety, the nation's largest gun violence prevention organization. In this role, uh, I lead a team that really focuses on two planks within the entertainment uh, community, one working with individuals to introduce our issue in our organization to a larger audience, like going on tour with Harry Styles last summer, which was very exciting for me personally, (laughs) Um, and uh, really working on storytelling, which is the uh, work that I lead within my team. Um, We work on storytelling in all forms of media that reflect what gun violence actually looks like in America and not just the instances that capture the nation's attention. We work on TV shows like Station 19 and New Amsterdam, I worked on the Oscar award-winning If Anything Happens, I Love You Sure on Netflix, um, as well as the Emmy-winning uh, documentary When Claude Got Shot. Um, and we work with creators and producers and anyone who wants to talk to us about what safe depiction actually looks like in America and what should be done on television. And so we are here to serve as that role. Um, As an aside, I am wearing orange today and I see a little bit of orange in the audience as well. Um, I, because it is National Gun Violence Awareness Day and the start of Wear Orange Weekend. We wear orange because in 2013, just days after marching in President Obama's second inaugural parade, Hadia Pendleton was shot and killed on a playground in the south side of Chicago. She was 15 years old. She had just finished her midterms and was hanging out with her friends. Um, After her death, her friends asked us to really stand up and wear orange because that's the color hunters wear in the woods to protect themselves and others. And it is a color that is so loud that can't be ignored and a color that says, don't shoot. So in 2015, on what would have been Hadia's 18th birthday, we helped elevate this to a national audience and the campaign is now in its ninth year. We honor survivors and we bring together communities in whatever way possible to say we can end gun violence in this country. So every single day, 120 people are shot and killed and hundreds more are wounded. Recent research also shows that we are a nation of survivors. Uh, 59% of American adults in this country um, either have been impacted by gun violence themselves or they care for someone who has been impacted by gun violence. The rest of the world watches the same shows, the same movies, plays the same video games, but their gun homicide rate, our gun homicide rate is 26 times that of other peer high-income nations. And the difference here is because of the lax gun laws here that allow unfettered access to guns. But that is not to say we can make a difference through storytelling. Um, in research, we actually funded with the Media Impact Project at Norman Lear Center um, we, uh, that was launched last fall. We know that storytelling and demonstrating safety when can change hearts and minds when done with intention and care. 
So we have a great panel ahead of us, and uh, they're here to talk about their experiences and uh, to just talk a little bit more about what they're doing on their sets. So uh, without further ado, I want to introduce our panelists. We have Dave Andron, uh, the creator, executive producer, showrunner of Justified City Primeval. Uh, next up, we have Melinda Shu Taylor, uh, creator, showrunner, executive producer of Tom Swift, and writer, showrunner, executive producer of Nancy Drew. We have Kate Fobe, uh, director of Hollywood Health and Society. We have L. Johnson, writer, executive producer of Bosch. And we have Christian Heine from Brady. Awesome. Thank you all for being here today. And uh, happy Friday and happy We're Orange Day. And thank you for putting on your buttons uh, for the panel as well. Um, I think we're just going to jump right in. Um, Elle and Dave, both of you have and had shows over the last decade that featured firearms. I would love to understand, kind of looking back over the last decade, what those conversations around firearm depictions look like, both in the writer's rooms, in front of the camera, behind the camera. would love to hear your experiences around that. I mean, I can start. Um, I most recently worked on a show called Bosch on Amazon, and it's based on the Michael Connelly detective novels. And I know that in our room, a lot of our conversations um, pertaining to specifically guns and how they're depicted, usually had more to do with the reflection of the characters. I was just, in thinking and preparing for this panel, I was just remembering how the, the daughter on the show, Maddie Bosch, um, has been put in a number of untenable, traumatic situations uh, to the point where we really felt like she, she would start to think about protecting herself in one, in one, I think there are two seasons where she's been kidnapped and taken hostage and obviously it's television so all these situations are heightened and it's highly unlikely that anyone would be kidnapped two times in their lifetime. <laughs> um, but having said that, we wanted to show that these were traumatic events for her and really had a discussion about how this law enforcement this daughter of a law enforcement officer would respond to this and, you know, sending her to her, having her feeling like she needed to have a gun to protect herself, having that conversation with her father and what that looked like um, and showing her going to the range, showing him, teaching her how to use a gun properly and safely. Um, but having said that, it's working on Bosch was always interesting to me. I'm the daughter of a law enforcement uh, um, parole officer and I remember my dad showing me how to use the guns in the house because as he always said if you have a gun it's more likely to be used against you than you will properly use it so as a child my sister and I were taught how to use the guns that had to be in the house and so it's always been an interesting conversation for me in terms of characters and how to depict that because I feel I do feel a sense of responsibility when you're showing people and I don't want to say cavalierly but showing people making the choice that they need to have a gun in order to be safe. But really, I felt like on Bosch, we really kind of had the discussion of why she arrived at that conclusion and what a hard decision it was, and that it's not a decision that, does, that comes without consequence. And so I felt that's one of the things that I really appreciated about Bosch, even though on the face of it, you look at the series and it's like, hmm, Harry Bosch has killed someone every season. He's probably not, <laughs> you know, that's not the reputation you want for the cop that you're rooting for. But having said that, I feel like we always try to take a deeper dive into why those situations occur and what puts the character into that situation. That's great. Dave, we'd love to hear about your experience. Yeah, you know, over the last... 12, 13 years, I've now kind of worked on two shows that featured a lot of gun violence. And, you know, I guess talking for a moment about Justified, the conversation since 2009 about gun violence and law enforcement has changed quite a quite a bit. Um, you know, I wasn't there for the pilot of Justified. I, I came in about halfway through the first season. And, and so I don't know, you know, I know that 
the justified pilot opens with him, you know, shooting a guy on a on a rooftop um, in a in a way that it's deemed a you know a good shooting or whatever, but it's pretty questionable, um, and it does get grounded in his character. By the end of the pilot, you think you've been watching this kind of cool gunslinging, you know, it's a western in, in many ways. But at the end, his his ex wife kind of calls him out and is like, "You're the angriest man I've ever known." And so to to Elle's point a little bit, it, it you do try to tie it into the character, but um, the conversation evolved over the years as we had to take more and more of a look as videos started to come out of these law enforcement shootings and you were like holy shit this is what's been happening all these years and it was always happening we just didn't see it in front of our face so it was easy to ignore and and the conversation around you know we we brought it back this year um and did another season of it and the conversations in the writer's room were, were quite a bit different about how we would approach gun violence how he would think about his own gunslinging um and then you know there is the reality of it is a it is a tv show right as you pointed out in your opening remarks every other country has the same the same video games they watch the same movies they don't have the same issues and and your job you know there if we had made a show that was didactic or preachy about gun violence people would have turned it off right like it's at a certain level it's our job to entertain and it, and it is a fantasy and we always kind of treated it as such but i was excited to come come here and be a part of this today just because it is an interesting contradiction um or or whatever it is to to have to go and and to make your living on shows that feature a lot of violence and then go home and turn on the news and I have a young child at home and like look at these schools and look at the law enforcement videos and feel like sick right and and be like well how do you like to to reconcile those two things and you do have to kind of parse it out as to like this is a this is an entertainment and this is a fantasy and this is a character thing and um and then there is real and there is reality and there is the NRA and there's the laws and there are the things in this country that are just completely fucked and backwards um sorry to not be more articulate but <laughs> Um, I think we are allowed to curse on this panel. Can we get a nod for that? Okay, great. Um, so sorry, that was a little bit of a long answer, but it is that that is a, a thing that is in my mind constantly. And, and with Snowfall, just quickly, you know, uh, that that is a show that was depicting violence in the African American community, and and we were on the other side of it a little. We were following criminals really more than more than anything. Um, but we talked a ton about the gun violence, and that was not you know, justified, the name of the show was justified referring to the shooting, right? I mean, it was such a part of the DNA of it. Um, Snowfall, it was, is a tragedy, right? I mean, that was a thing where basically anytime a gun came out and was used, it was awful. It was hurting somebody we probably cared about or, and that was our intent was the way we shot every scene that took place, violence scene. It was like, you know, I would sit with directors multiple times and be like, look, I don't, no slow-mo, no glamorizing this. Like, this gun violence has to be ugly. It has to be real. It has to be grounded. Um, and one of our executive producers, Tommy Schlamme, who's a pretty legendary director, was also very involved in this and adamant that when we were doing it, it was going to be ugly gun violence. It was not cool. It was like, this is heartbreaking and sad and because that's the reality, right? A gun gets pulled and used. It is nothing but heartbreaking and sad ever. Absolutely. And I think a lot of times we talk about the consequences of gun violence that we don't see on television. We don't see what happens after the shooter pulls the trigger. We don't see what it means to live with a bullet inside their bodies. We talk about the lead poisoning that are, um, you know, affecting survivors and wounded survivors. And it is, these are stories that need to be told and elevated. And so thank you for uh, being a part of that. And I think that actually transitions perfectly to my next question to Melinda. Um, like you said, you know, TV really can represent, you know, either an aspirational society or really holds a mirror up to what is happening in this world. And usually when we go into writer's rooms, we are asked to kind of work around the gun. So offering up secure storage solutions, what that looks like, come home, wash your hands, put the gun away, locked, uh, unloaded, and stored separately from ammunition, or policy solutions that need elevation that can actually solve a very specific gun, you know, gun violence issue on that story. Um, but Melinda, you set Nancy Drew in a world with no guns, and you purposely and you did that very intentionally. Um, and when we live in a country with more guns than people, so I would love to um, 
I would love for you to share your thought process behind that, as well as how you flex the creative muscle um, around not having guns on your show. Well, thank you for uh, bringing that up. I grew up in Maine, which is a you know, pretty rural state, a lot of hunters, a lot of gun culture, I would say. The first two experiences I had with guns were pretty traumatic. One was when I was about 12, I was at this best friend's house, Arnold Lane. And his dad was a hunter, and they would go hunting, and they had a rack of rifles just sitting in the den, you know. And this cousin was visiting, and he pulled one of the rifles off of the shelf, pointed it at Arnold's brother, and pulled the trigger. I mean, this kid was just like a, a little bit <laughs> impulse control problems. Fortunately, uh, it was not loaded. Um, Mr. Lane was very responsible how it kept the ammunition. But as the boys grew up, they got guns. They had their own guns. Arnold had, I want to say, a Colt 45. It was some kind of handgun. And um, he got very depressed senior year. And then at freshman year in college, he uh, died by suicide. So that was, and I went to the house that night with my parents. It's pretty upsetting, to put it mildly, to be in the aftermath of that. I still think about it. You know, I still think about his mom and, and the impact on his older brother and his dad. And it was just like the ripple effect. I named the character of my first screenplay after Arnold. After that, I kind of put it out of my mind because it wasn't really in my face. But it was always kind of there. I was always conscious of what this possibility was. And then I was unemployed for a long stretch during the, the year um, right before the Sandy Hook massacre happened. So I distinctly remember watching the news and having all this time to think about it. And my kids were about that age. They were six-ish when that happened. And I um, took a long look in the mirror and thought, what am I doing in my work as a TV writer that is either contributing or not contributing to this issue? And I decided that as I got up the food chain, I would decide to make very conscious choices not to use guns. Not every TV writer has that luxury. I definitely did not have the luxury of turning down jobs at different points in my career. I do now have the luxury to pick and choose a little bit. So when Nancy Drew came around and I became the showrunner, I said, my only mandate in this room is that we do not have guns on this show. We do not talk about them. They're not props. They're not set deck. They are not ever even in the conversation as a cold case. Somebody was, you know... And so many times in the writer's room, somebody would say, oh, maybe it's a gun, or maybe that person you know, was shot to death. And we would say, nope, no guns. And they would find a way around it. I mean, there's plenty of mayhem and, and murder on Nancy Drew. We still found ways to um, you know, have mysteries. But we had the luxury of being in this small town. They were teenagers. They worked at a lobster shack. You know, They don't need to be waving guns around. And even the cops, we had a couple of seasons where I allowed guns on the holsters, in the holsters of cops. And then I got more even conscientious about that. They started to carry tasers later in the show. There was one um, hostage, well, sort of a fake hostage situation because it was slightly comedic, but somebody was pretending to hold Mr. Drew hostage. And then the, the cops came outside and they didn't know it was um, just a ruse. And um, they had a gun drawn because we did a lot of research. What is the realistic response? I didn't want to dishonor that. But the first thing that happens in that scene, you see a, a, an officer with his gun drawn and the black female detective comes onto the scene and lowers his gun and then she starts talking to the people inside the house. So that was one way that we could be conscious about it. On Tom Swift, same thing, no guns. Futuristic show. I mean, this is a luxury. I choose to work in YA genre. That's what I love to do. It's fairly easy for me to say, you know, we're just not going to have guns on Tom Swift. He's an inventor. He's a billionaire genius. Why would he want that? So you know, I think that um, the other thing, however, that's become very powerful for me now that I'm developing new shows, hopefully, is that I can say to my agents or to anybody I sit down with, I don't do shows with guns. And that winnows down so many things coming into my inbox. They won't even show me a project that has guns. There was um, a Netflix pilot that I was offered the chance to supervise. It was great. I didn't end up doing it for a completely different reason. But there was one, you know, in the series pitch, the climactic moment of season one ends with somebody getting shot at long distance. And it's very tragic, and it's very romantic, and he's sacrificing himself. And I was like, I get it. You know, I think that this is a great moment for that character. Because we're in this slightly heightened world, could you have somebody plant a kill switch in his head? Like Mission Impossible 3. I mean, it's not something I invented. And they trigger it at long distance. It's got the same effect. He dies in her arms. It's very romantic and tragic, and he's sacrificing himself. But it is also a metaphor for the endemic systemic racism that he's kind of a part of. You know, like, couldn't we make a bigger story point out of the, the secret kill switch that he cannot get out of his brain? Anyway, so um, they were sort of open to that. I'm not really sure if that would have flown if I had gotten the job. But, <laughs> but, you know, you can at least make these suggestions. 
And then one place where I did have an impact, um, there was a show called, well, there is a show called Deathbed. It was sold to Roku. I don't know what its future will be post-strike, but I was in um, the running for a position on the show, and they wanted me to be kind of the number two on staff. My friend Neil Reynolds uh, created it. And I said, I can't take this job if you're going to continue doing the gun violence that erupts at the end of the pilot. I understand why it does. It's a very specific set piece, and I get it. And you've already written the pilot. But um, would you be open to taking guns out of the show after the pilot? He deals with the supernatural. He's an adventurer. He could use all sorts of mayhem weaponry. Does it have to be a gun? And Neil said, no, absolutely not. And I feel the same way that Dave does, essentially, about guns and uh, you know, culture in the United States. And we ran it up the chain at Warner Brothers and Roku, and everybody said, fantastic. Let's take guns out of the show. And so that was the condition on which I got involved with the project. So it's possible. Yeah, and it's really fascinating to hear about the mayhem that you were able to create without a weapon. And so, you know, let's all, make sure. Let's talk about that. All those Nancy Drew knife fights, which I thought were really... <laughs> she's such a badass. Yeah. But it's interesting yeah. that you're able to stick to that because I feel... I was thinking, you know, in standards and practice for a lot of the broadcast mm -hmm. networks, you can't smoke. You can't show people smoking. Yeah. So why not move in the direction of don't show guns? Yeah. Why? Well, and, and to have a showrunner put their foot down and say, I'm not doing the show if it involves guns. We need more showrunners like you, because it is true. Uh, writers, you all are the most creative people on the planet, and you should be getting compensated for that. <laughs> yes. That's another panel, but anyway. Um, but you are, and if anybody can come up with creative ways for mayhem and mystery and all the rest of it, you can. And so why, it's, it's almost become a lazy um, trope, you know, to just rely on a gun because yeah. they are so ubiquitous on TV and in our lives that, you know, be more creative, well, do something different. And also, I mean, just get, turning it back to character, like my dad always used to say, if someone has a, a gun, you can run. If someone has a knife, you're going to have to stay and fight because it's so much more personal. There's something so depersonalized mm -hmm. about using a gun versus if you're going to, you know, frankly, if someone wants to stab you, they're, it's gonna, you're going to have a hard time probably stopping them. And it's just that just speaks to how desensitized we are to what gun violence actually is and how it seems like it's so much easier. You just pull a trigger and there are no repercussions for mm -hmm. you, the shooter, or we're not showing the repercussions. Exactly, yeah. And so one thing yeah. we have in um, our recommendation is that one, ask the question, do you need to have a gun here? If you're going to have a gun, let's make sure you're telling the full story and you're also telling the full lifespan of what that looks like. Um, I do want to take advantage of having a, a, a policy expert on this panel. Um, I mentioned you know, showing policy solutions because so much of this work feels so hopeless. And you know, we might know about background checks, but we're not talking about, not a lot of people know about the very specific loopholes here. We're talking about an assault weapons ban, but uh, people may not know about the accessories that can make things an assault weapon. Um, arm braces, the silencers, uh, all the things that we talk about as an organization. Um, Christian, I would love to understand, you know, one thing we always talk about is the representation of red flag laws in media, because we know that red flag laws can save lives when um, enacted properly. So um, Christian, I would love for you to describe what a red flag law actually is and why we need more representation of that on, um, on TV. Yeah, <clears throat> thanks so much, and um, and thanks for the incredible dialogue up here. I mean, I think it, uh, this panel represents all the different ways in which uh, depicting uh, what gun violence looks like in America, um, reaching different audiences in different ways. We have a lot of opportunities here um, uh, with this platform. And Sophie, you raise a really good point. I mean, the way that we depict policy overall is critical. Um, extreme response is a really good example. You know, these are policies where when somebody is in crisis, uh, and now we're now we have 21 states. We can say uh, six months ago it was 19 states. So shout out to Minnesota and Michigan for for getting extreme risk <laughs> laws too. But these are laws where if somebody's uh, at risk of harm uh, or displaying behavioral risk factors, if they're uh, uh, you know, but they don't fit the criteria for an involuntary commitment. We don't want to wait till they commit a violent act um, to get remove the firearm, especially because so often we can get them the help that they need. And so these are policies that are designed to temporarily separate them from firearms. And it's a really, uh, uh, you know, it's a tool that people have available, but the only way that it gets used, the only way we can save lives is if people know about it. So it's a, it's a great point. And 
And I would tack on, Sophie, too, that, um, you know, and, and, you know, Dave, you, you brought up a really good point, right? The moment that a lot of, and we've heard this from a lot of the showrunners we work with at Brady, that the moment that some showrunners feel like they're getting preachy, uh, then you miss an opportunity to reach an audience that maybe you otherwise wouldn't, right? Maybe the folks who are watching Nancy Drew obviously are going to be different than the folks who are watching Justified or Yellowstone or some of these other aspects, right? So we have opportunities in the space to, um, rather than sort of uh, push some kind of uh, agenda, one that, um, that we support and we know makes sense, there's also part of this needs to be bringing gun owners, right? Um, gun owners are a critical part of, pre of, of preventing uh, suicide, uh, preventing unintentional shootings in the home. And a lot of showrunners have opportunities that we've been working with to make safe storage look cool, right? Like you can, like the cop that comes home and pours himself a scotch, before he does that, he could very coolly open up a biometric safe and throw it in the safe and then close the door. And then all of a sudden it's not preachy. You haven't pushed an agenda, but you have sent a signal to gun owners who are watching that show, hey, locking up your gun is cool, right? And, and similarly, I'll add one last uh, point to this and something that, we're, uh, that, that is in this, this vein too, is for a long time, we talk about gun violence purely as an element of who is the individual that pulled the trigger. Uh, but we know that, for instance, and this is a jarring statistic every time I say it, that only 5% of gun dealers in this country are responsible for 90% of crime guns. Um, so it's a very small number of irresponsible dealers. But we don't depict, hey, how did the gun get here? They don't grow on trees. They're diverted into this criminal market. And so a lot of showrunners that we've been working with, too, are thinking about, okay, how do we depict the whole of gun violence? Who is everybody that's responsible? Let's not glorify it, but let's talk about that pathway of the firearm. And that, in turn, will lead to policy solutions that will save lives, uh, that will prevent the flow of illegal guns, that is having a disproportionate impact in communities of color, um, and will change the dialogue that we're having as a country uh, that uh, has led to a state of apathy where too many people think there's nothing we can do about this problem when, when that's a tangible, 5%, that's a tangible way that we can break in and prevent gun violence. So those are a couple examples that I think that um, uh, the work that the folks up here are doing, the different avenues, the different pathways lead to critical policy change, but also behavioral and attitudinal change that will save lives too. Yeah, I would say, you know, the seatbelt campaign, which some of you are old enough to remember uh, a time when people didn't just regularly put their seatbelts on. But all of a sudden, the entertainment industry decided to embrace this issue. So anytime you saw anybody get in a car on your favorite show, they just put their seatbelt on. And, and the next thing you know, we're all putting our seatbelts on. And it's like the thing to do. And now you're horrified if somebody doesn't, mm -hmm. right? I can remember when it wasn't cool to put your seatbelt on, right? But that was because the entertainment industry took on that issue and embraced it. And the same thing can happen with gun safety. The one thing um, that I have learned since working on this topic is that, you know, the mass shootings get all the press, but children are dying every day from unsafe guns in the home. And so if we can make it cool to come home, put your gun in the safe, you know, and it takes two seconds. Some of them have a fingerprint thing now, so it's really <laughs> fast. Um, or you, uh, you know, you unload it or whatever. I think it can have gun owners all over the country, you know, just starting to do that because that's what you do, because that's what their favorite characters on TV do. So that's one of the reasons that we designed, I have, I have my little prop here, and I just I dress to match it as well, um, uh, Hollywood Health and Society and Brady have developed a guide for the media, for entertainment industry uh, professionals, writers, producers, um, called Trigger Warning. And um, it's just all kinds of statistics and data. We don't get into a lot of how to do the writing because you guys know how to do that much better than we do. But we give you all kinds of statistics the myths that are out there, people think children die by mass shooting, but really they're dying every day from unsafe guns. There are all kinds of things like that in this guide. It's available online on our website. We're putting it out there for all TV writers, producers, et cetera, to use it as a resource when you're going forward with your shows. Also to show, as I think one of you, maybe Sophie, you said, the consequences mm -hmm. of... Yep. of using a gun, you know, of not that the hero, the hero, whether it's a cop 
or a, the good guy, you know, gets away with shooting, you know, 20 people and doesn't suffer any consequences for that. We need to see that people actually do and should suffer consequences from using their gun, whether they're a cop or not. So all of that kind of stuff is in here, and I encourage everybody to take a look at our website and take a look at it. Consequences, whether it's, it's actual kind of from your job or just, you know, real-life consequences, but it's emotional consequences mm-hmm. as well. I've worked on plenty of cop shows and worked with a number of technical consultants who have been in the unfortunate position of having to kill someone on the job, and let me tell you, it really affects them. It's not, it's not oh, it's a good shoot and let's have a kill party. These are people who have never forgotten it to the point where they know the birthday of the person that they kill. They yeah. think about it every year. And it never leaves them. Yeah. And I think the PTSD and the trauma is so, it's never, it's rarely shown in storylines. And I think that having the aftermath would really add so much to the story, to the dimension, and also show the consequences. It's not just a bullet that goes through someone's arm. They're in a sling for two weeks and then they're back on duty and everything's fine. And they don't jump when a car backfires anymore. And so I think um, having all these conversations have been incredibly helpful and also just like amazing transition about the heavy-handed storytelling because that's the next thing I was going to ask Kate. Um, So we worked with Kate's team on um, the report that I mentioned at the top and the guide, you know, includes a lot of that research. Um, And one of the big things is the fact that we actually found that heavy-handed storytelling people were literally rejected the storyline um, out of the experimental research that they re- uh, they saw. And Kate, I would love to for you to describe a little bit of it, of it if possible, but also any recommendations that you may have for the writers to say, how can you avoid these um, overt storylines that, that make you feel like you're being hit over the head with it? Yeah, well, yeah, it was really fun, and I, I'm going to admit that I'm not the lead researcher on this research project, so I'm gonna, if, if she were here, she'd be scolding me probably <laughs> of the way I talk about it. But, but first of all, we did um, a content analysis where we looked at uh, gun violence in entertainment over two years, so from 2019 to 2021, and we examined 250 episodes of 33 popular scripted dramas. Um, of those episodes had gun-related content. Five gun-carrying characters per episode. So not just one guy with a gun or a girl with a gun, but five per episode. 30% at least one character shooting a gun. Most guns were associated with law enforcement, but they were the good guys, right? And most of those who got shot were expendable, and they were usually white men. Now think about that in terms of the reality that we know in this country, who's the victim of gun violence. Anyway, so that was some of the stuff we saw in the, um, you know, and rarely did we see safe storage or talk about gun laws or uh, discussion of gun violence or the ramifications, mental illness, all that stuff. Um, But we also did an impact study where we looked at the attitudes and, and behaviors and knowledge gains of audiences after watching an episode that involved what you might say a preachy, you know, moment. So we looked at two different storylines. One was on Grey's Anatomy, where a child finds an improperly stored gun and accidentally shoots and kills a friend. Sounds like you're... (laughs) Um, And... uh, we had them talking about, you know, the issues and, and the ramifications and all the rest of it in the show. And we found that audiences gained a greater knowledge of gun safety facts after watching that episode. And if they had a gun at home, they all of a sudden felt like they were less safe rather than more safe. We also did a study on an episode of New Amsterdam, um, which had to do with the trauma associated with participating in an active shooter drill not even a real thing, but just a drill. And this is something else that children are traumatized in schools having to go through these drills. Um, Anyway, so the trauma involved, and we found that um, people that watched it tend to have a greater preference for training and prevention methods without the simulated violence. So table discussions and things like that. So, So those were just two episodes that had a, and, and of course it wasn't the primary storyline, it was a, a moment. It probably took, you know, a few minutes max where they had that conversation 
or they, you know, demonstrated, uh, you know, dealing with a school shooting, that sort of thing. That had an impact on audiences to really change their minds. And it didn't matter if they were gun owners or not. And in fact, I think they, they both came out, from both of those shows, came out with greater support for policy, mm-hmm. regulating drills, regulating guns. I mean, it didn't matter, um, gun owner or not. Their learnings were the same, and their attitudes were the same. I so, think the reactance uh, part of that study yes. was really interesting. So the reactance was, uh, again, Erica's going to yell at me for uh, describing this poorly. I know, as well. she's going to criticize <laughs> She's going to yell at both later, of us. But, um, <laughs> but she, uh, so reactance is the, the feeling that you are being attacked for your personal values by an outside force. And then, so if the greater the reactance level here, the more likely they were to reject the storylines. So even though I think policy overall went support for our policies went up in that um but i would love to open it up to the writers too it's you know how do you insert your value how do you add your values to the story not insert um without uh without it being so heavy and how do you create around that um maybe start with dave and then go down the line yeah i mean i guess for for me on the things that i've worked on the only trying to do a better job of showing the ramifications of it right the the brutal heartbreak of losing somebody you love because of it and you know the emotional toll that it takes on the person who's done it we you know one of the characters in snowfall who the the uncle who you kind of assumed maybe had killed a bunch of people we like made kind of a moment of him of the person he had killed in a gun like made sure that you the camera really hit him when he pulled the trigger and 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 addressed it afterward that it started to unravel him that he was like I killed the guy, like I killed this dude and and I think the shock of the audience watching him be like oh wait that guy hasn't killed someone before like there was this weird assumption we found amongst the audience that that he had probably already killed someone or that it was not something that was going to bother him but but using using the character and watching it start to break him down um, to the point where he wants out right like that seemed like the best way to kind of address the trauma. Such that it was that it was real, that it was, that it was a part of our world, and it didn't feel like we were, you know, shoving it down someone's throat um, or, or turning them off. It was just like that's a part of the world. Like everybody in the world of Snowfall had PTSD, and it was coming out in some form or another. Yeah. And it was really just a matter of how we chose to kind of express it in story. But you know, if you're going to work in a medium that's going to include violence because it is a part of the world, like that felt like that felt like the way to you know, yeah. to best kind of bring it into the light. Melinda, any uh, suggestions on how to avoid heavy-handed storytelling in general, not just... Uh, yeah, in yeah. general, I can speak to because I'm not sure exactly what the analogous situation would be in um, gun safety and, and gun policy, but in the writer's rooms that we had for Nancy Drew and Tom Swift, we were very inclusive. And when we told a story about something that had happened to a black person, we really listened to the black writers in the room. We had a cold case that Nancy solved where a woman had been um, arrested and during the course of the arrest, she had received a head injury that eventually led to her death in the prison cell. And this had been covered up by the police. So we had this moment in the flashback where you did have to see what had happened, but our writer of the episode, one of the writers is black, and she said, I don't want to see a black woman getting beaten. I don't want to see her head hit the car when he shoves her into the police car. And we filmed it in such a way that it was clear what was about to happen, but we were very careful not to show it, not to kind of, I don't know, exoticize, you mm-hmm. know, this horrible... Yeah, trauma yeah, porn. Exactly, that's it. Um, and so we were able to tell the story and give you what had happened, but we didn't make a, a visual, like, I don't know. We didn't milk it visually, you know what I mean? We, we actually made it more about the emotion and the aftermath. So that was one thing, and, and Andrea was wonderful in speaking up about that. And uh, then there was another storyline where we wanted to show that um, this white cafe owner was being very you know, close-minded and prejudiced and not wanting the youth center to open up across the street. And um, our black teenager who had opened up this youth center had to go confront him about, you know, well, I've decided that, you know, well, I mean, he was trying to convince him, first of all. I had gone to a Color of Change seminar on Zoom, and, and I was like, what if you said to him, you know, when you have kids an opportunity, you know, to do something that does not lead them back to dangerous behaviors that could end them up in jail again, what if we, you know, give them these pathways, or should we just stand by and do nothing and wait for them to mess up? And um, so I pitched this in the writer's room, 
And it was one side of it, and Erica, the writer of the episode, said, I am so tired of taking the high road. <laughs> okay, okay, what do you want to say, Erica? What should this person say? And she said, she, he should absolutely start with that, and then he should say, so that is why, Jake, of Jake's Cafe, I am buying the building across the street <laughs> because I have all this money from another storyline and, and Nancy Drew. And, uh, you know, you can't do anything about it, essentially. It was, like, the most satisfying scene. So we had, you know, a little bit of, um, I don't know, policy that I'd heard on a Zoom. And then we also had a really authentic feeling that the writer had about this kind of situation. And it was very empowering, and it was a great scene. And a great character moment. I mean, uh, again, I think it always goes back to character and infusing these things Mm -hmm. with what's going on with the character. L, any... Um... Yeah, I mean, my situation is really interesting. I, um, I, as I said, I have a lot of law enforcement in my family, and a large part of why I became a writer stems from when I was 16, my 16-year-old cousin was had her face blown off in a, in a robbery gun awry in a Burger King in New York, and that really impacted me. Having a family member and somebody whose father was a homicide detective, it was all over the news, and it became kind of a pivotal moment for me in a lot of ways a lot of reasons why I went into this industry. I have frequently, and you know, I've been writing television for 20 some odd years, and for the most part, I'm usually the only black woman in the room when it's a cop show. I'm surrounded by white men, and I'm, you know, I'm usually the only black person, I'm usually the only woman. And so to me, I go into those situations already feeling like I, I need to um, do more. It can't just be a storyline. It's got to really come from character. And really thinking about what I'm saying and what I'm putting out there. I remember, and I think Kate, you know, I had this conversation some years ago, but when I worked on Law & Order, I was determined to do shows about black characters, black victims, and black suspects, because I found, you know, 90% of the stories on Law & Order are about well-to-do white people. Mm -hmm. And the the suspects are always white because you think you will care about following them more. And that's not the reality of who is in prison and who, who mm-hmm. is being shot. Just look at Chicago. So I went on that show and I was like, every episode that I do is going to have only black characters. And I remember we did an episode about the, gun, the iron pipeline in New mm-hmm. York, the gun pipeline and, and straw sales and uh, two undercover cops who got shot in the process of trying to buy back guns. And of course, you think of undercovers and you think, you, you don't normally really think about who the undercovers are. Well, most of the undercovers in this world are black because that's where the guns are being sold. So it was about two black undercover officers who got shot. Everyone in the storyline was black. And I remember when we were doing the casting, um, the director of the episode, we had all the photos on the ground of, of who we were casting. He's like, wow, like, have you, I don't think we've ever done an episode where it's an all black cast. And to me, I thought, and I wish I'd said at the time, I thought, do you ever look at your casting and say, wow, it's an all-white episode? <laughs> um, but so to me, it, it's always about getting into the deeper reasons of why somebody is involved in the situation to begin with, mm-hmm. whether it's the suspect or the witnesses or any of the characters who are surrounding it. And I feel like that's how you avoid being preachy, by treating every character with the respect that they are at base a human being and I think that's what gets lost a lot in these stories so often we're seeing these stories and they're told about white characters Mm -hmm. and the assumption is well they are worthy of our attention but if you believe that everybody is worthy of attention then you will be able to take characters of different colors and show those stories like what Snowfall does it's like those people that community is worthy of attention and so you can tell compelling stories and people want to watch and people care about them. Amazing. I have to say, when my daughter was a teenager or maybe junior high, and I, I, I'm a TV nerd like all of us in the room, right? So I watch all the shows and I was watching some cop show or whatever and, and she came in to talk to me and she said, and she looked at the show and she went, why is it every one of these shows that you watch, and of course she's 35 now, so this was a while ago, but why every show that you watch, every one of these cop shows, it's always about a dead white girl. And I mean, I thought, whoa, she noticed that, you know, and she's a white girl, but she noticed that. And she said, that, that just seems like that's, that's contrived. I said, mm, yeah, pretty yeah, much. Yeah. Pretty much. There's definitely work, yeah, there's definitely work to be done here. So I want to be cognizant of time and maybe open it up for Q&A in the audience, but um, one last, and I could 
I literally have like five other questions that we're not getting to. Um, but very quickly down the line, um, we talked about some very heavy topics today, but what gives you hope uh, for the future? Nancy Drew. <laughs> yes, I'm going to say. Okay, well, all these folks on the panel doing this work and the policy and, you know, the advocacy, I really appreciate it. The orange shirts. Thank you, everybody, for being here. At, at, this gives me hope that people are listening and they want to engage in this. Here. And realizing the... Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say, realizing the action item, which I kind of didn't going into this, but understanding that whether, you know, you're a gun over owner and you're you are not inclined to change your position or you're somebody who will never own a gun. The idea is to get these issues out there, like the seatbelt, like not smoking, in the general public so that it just becomes the norm of like, of course we're going to vote for policy that is against this so that everyone gets the feeling and that's how we can change hearts and minds. It's, it's just by changing the groundswell. And we know we can do it. COVID taught us that if we really wanted to stop the world on a dime, we could. And so this is an issue that we have to start feeling more passionately about. And I think by telling these stories in this way, we can really just change the general zeitgeist around it. Yeah, and I think, um, you know, what, what was helpful to me, especially in the research that we did, was seeing that gun owners and people that aren't gun, owner, gun owners all sort of learn something and change their attitudes around this. So this, believe it or not, this is an issue that no matter what your policy, you know, your policy preference or your ideology is, you we can come together on gun safety. You know, I, I don't want, you know, we're not going to get rid of guns altogether in the United States, not by tomorrow anyway, but we can definitely <laughs> achieve gun safety just like the seatbelt, just like designated driver, all of these things that have become sort of the norm. And and I have hope in the entertainment industry. And shameless plug, again, you know, <laughs> anybody who wants to use our guide, it's there for the taking. And I'll just say, <clears throat> um, so Tuesday... Uh, it was May 30th, which is, it marked 18 years from what brought me into this movement, which um, was a horrific incident in Southern California. My dad survived being shot multiple times. Uh, my mom was shot and killed with a single bullet to the back. Um, and so, you know, 18 years is a hard number um, to, to fathom. What I can say is conversations like these are what give me hope. Um, for so long in doing this work, it felt very lonely. Um, there would be panels like this where there'd be more panelists than there would be uh, <laughs> people listening. Um, the movement that we have created uh, to prevent gun violence uh, in this country is, is working every day. It can seem hopeless, I know. Um, but there weren't a group or, or and there and this you know this is representative, but there's so many showrunners and writers having these conversations today to make the kind of change that Kate is is discussing that was transformative for every social you know public health movement that we've seen like like smoking like drunk driving like like so many other things. This is going to have a huge impact because you can hear there's the rethinking the way that guns have to be depicted in television, rethinking the way that we talk about the lasting impact of gun violence in America because we know it's not representative of what gun violence looks like, right? My trauma exists every single day of my life, you know, and, and we have to, it's not just dealing with it in an episode, it's a character arc for the rest of that character's existence, right? Yeah. Um, and also the, creating space for behavioral and attitudinal shifts for People who maybe aren't even thinking, I don't care about the policy, but you know what? I should lock up my gun. I got a kid at home. I should, and it's, look how easy it was. I watched uh, The Diplomat the other day, mm -hmm. and, and somebody comes into the home. She hears a rustling. She's a CIA agent. She goes, she opens up her nightstand, and within two seconds has a big gun with a giant silencer on it, mm -hmm. but she went into a safe to get that firearm, and that's the kind of depiction that's going to have a long-term impact, so yeah. I'm hopeful. Um, uh, contradictory to, to the fact that my mom's not here 18 years later. It actually marks that now she's been dead longer than she was alive in my life. And uh, the change in this conversation, the change in this room, the change that we're seeing in the country, that's what fills me with hope because I know eventually we're going to get to where we need to be. So, Thank you. Yeah. All. Um, I think we Amazing. have maybe time for one question or maybe two. Um, do, I, do we have an audience, Mike? Nope. 
No, okay. Um, if you stand up and shout. You, you can shout and then I'll repeat it into the mic, yes. Mm. as well as black men who experience violence. And so this kind of came up, but it didn't get to the point of what I was interested in, which is I think so often when I listen to young men in my research, and I'm a social worker, so I was a practitioner before, we don't see often on TV the impact of being the perpetrator. Mm -hmm. And I think part of what then happens is that we take away and we really kind of make that look sexy. Mm -hmm. And so I wonder if you think there would ever be a movement towards when we talk about, like, Uh, just to repeat the question, the question is about uh, showing depictions of what the perpetrator goes through. Um, just very quickly, this is why we worked on the um, documentary When Claude Got Shot, because it showed the full cycle of the perpetrator, the person who was shot, and then also another person who actually shot the original perpetrator. And it's this cycle of gun violence and cycle of trauma. And that's one of the reasons why we supported it, because that was a story that hadn't been told before. And we really wanted to elevate kind of that story. But um, who on the panel would... I mean, I feel like times with the advent of streaming and, and different types of shows, it's really hard on a broadcast show or a traditional cop show to get into that because your focus is on the hero cop or the, you know, solving the crime. And so you don't have the real estate. You've got, you know, in an hour show on a broadcast, you have maybe 45, 50 minutes to do it. So you tend not to get into that. But in the streamers, you know, there's way more opportunity to explore that. And I mean, just off the top of my head, the first show that really explored <laughs> the impact, for better or worse, on the perpetrators was like The Sopranos, you know, mm. or... Um, uh, you know the, the 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 wire. Yes, that's another a, another great example. But I, I feel like you know that is something. It would be great to be able to lend moments to that. I don't think in some shows you're never going to get the full breadth of it. But I I agree that it's it's completely important and it's important to motivation to why people do things and to stop making it seem like it's just so cool to be the dangerous bad guy who comes in and blows someone away and then everyone's afraid. Um, it would be nice to show the other side of that in a moment and what's motivating that. One recently that struck me, and it's a little different because it's not really gun violence in America today, which I think, you know, The Wire probably does this a lot, like in, in showing the cycles and how nobody's perfect. But uh, The Last of Us was an interesting <laughs> show for in this regard in that the character of Joel is not a character that you're, you're not like, I want to be that guy. You're not necessarily thinking this is a hero of mine or what you want to do, but he, it is so entrenched in his character that the violence he has committed has changed who he is. That um, and and you see that through her too, right? You, well, you see, an L really changes in a way that's that's, that's you, you're really uncomfortable the whole time you're watching too. That that to me, you, it, it was very real in a way that I think that I think a lot of shows and when you hear a lot of the writers who are talking about even this conversation, right? You can you can feel that 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 change is happening. Yeah, I mean, look, we we did it a bunch on Snowfall. I kind of referenced the uncle character, but the you know the character who's the most violent when we start the show and kind of has the shortest fuse and the the hottest temper about halfway through the run of the episodes. There's a shootout, car to car shootout that happens where the like the guys they're kind of looking for to go after just pull up right next to them, and there's this scramble, and they're just blindly fi fi firing into cars. And sorry, this is heavy and. A spoiler, but whatever. <laughs> um, the, and there, there ends up being a, a little girl in the back of one of the cars, and he kills this little girl, and it completely shatters him, right? And that's like the midpoint of his arc for this. And at the end of the show, again, sorry, massive, whatever. Uh, he he's the guy who's like the guy in the neighborhood who's trying to bring people together and running a shelter, and it it is his arc, right? It is the defining moment of his life as a character, and and the trauma of that spools out over 
30 episodes or whatever and brings him to this place where he's completely a completely different person than when he started the show and and there was really an effort to try to do that with all these these characters these young black men who are trying to live this life who get into it thinking it's going to be one thing and it is by the end it, it is um you know again everyone has ptsd and some of them are really completely different people and so we, we were really attempting to do that it was the thing we talked about in the writer's room and um quite quite a bit um, and felt the responsibility of that. So we, we, are, we are trying. Yeah. And I feel like we can, we can continue this conversation for like another two hours, but I am being told we have to wrap up. Um, but thank you all, everyone, for being here today um, and for being a part of this movement. Um, just by showing up, you are a part of this. You're an advocate, and it's just that simple. And we're just really grateful to everyone for um, being in this fight with all of us. So thank you again. And... Um, next uh go to the next thing <laughs> uh thank you thanks everybody you have been listening to the tv campfire podcast hosted by atx tv co-founders emily gibson and caitlin mcfarland and produced by jennifer morgan this conversation was recorded live at ATX TV Festival Season 12 in Austin, Texas, between June 1st and 4th, 2023. For more information on the festival and becoming an ATX TV member, follow us at ATX Festival or visit atxfestival.com.